If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles provided for you. It should be in the seats in front of you. Uh, you'll find our passage this morning on page 865 uh, in those Bibles. Now, it has been a month since we've been in Luke. We had lots of other things that happened. Uh, so we're returning, to, we're returning to the gospel of Luke in chapter 8. So let me remind you where we are. Jesus is near the end of his Galilean ministry. Meaning, there have certainly been times when Jesus has traveled south to Judea and he has preached there and he has ministered there. But to this point, the majority of his ministry has been in that northern region of Israel called Galilee. This is his home region. This is the area in which Jesus grew up. Capernaum, right there on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, that has been his home base since his ministry began. But his days of ministry in Galilee are drawing to a close. It has been a fruitful time. Jesus has been overall well-received in Galilee. There have certainly been skeptics. There have certainly been scoffers. The Pharisees, who, who hold religious sway over that region, they have really come to despise him. But by and large, this northern area of Israel has been ripe for harvest. A significant number of people had been well prepared by the preaching of John the Baptist. So that when Jesus came, he now has quite a following. And alongside those who are sincerely coming to Jesus to be taught by him, to be helped by him, uh, there are many others coming to witness the spectacle of his healings or to investigate this, this newsmaker for themselves. So unlike the beginning of Jesus' ministry where we found him preaching in synagogues and in closed buildings, even in houses. We now regularly find Jesus preaching to thousands on hillsides and on plains. We can imagine that his 12 disciples, now being prepared to be sent out as apostles, they've had to take on a new role, the role of security. As Jesus goes to a house to eat or just to lay down his head for the night, crowds follow him. They all want access to him. Earlier, we saw Jesus at Simon Peter's house in Capernaum. and Late into the evening, he was healing every person who came to him. That's who he is. And even now, he provides salvation for every person who comes to him. But that was earlier in his ministry because of his growing popularity, we now find that not everyone can get to him. We remember how some men had to cut a hole in, the, in a roof to lower their paralyzed friend down into the house where Jesus was teaching because they could not get access through the crowd. And even that was before the height of his ministry that we've now reached in our study of Luke. You can imagine how busy a time this was for Jesus. 
how much preaching, teaching, healing he was doing, how many conversations he was having as people wanted to draw near to him and speak to him and ask him questions and get his counsel. No wonder in our next passage, even as the the wind and the waves rage around him, we're going to find him sleeping on a boat. Well, it's in this context of the busyness of Jesus' ministry, the crowds of Jesus' ministry, that our three verses unfold this morning. So look beginning in verse 19. Verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my brother, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Considered one of the hard teachings of Jesus. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It is possible to read this passage and to be taken aback. What is Jesus saying here? Is he being harsh towards his family? Is he, is he not wanting to own his family or to spend time with his family? What is Jesus teaching in these words? And why were they considered so important that Luke chose to include them in his gospel? I mean, think about so many things that Jesus must have said that never made their way into the pages of this book. Yet Luke believed that this was significant enough it needed to be included. Why? Well, first, let's notice who is here. So we have our Lord, and we have the crowd around him. Uh, Perhaps he was teaching. Perhaps he was healing Uh, Perhaps he was breaking bread around a table in someone's home. He does seem to be inside here. Uh, Nevertheless, the crowd seems to be thick. Maybe it's the crowd both within this house where perhaps he's having dinner and then uh, the crowd outside the house because they all can't get into him. And we find that his mother Mary is trying to reach him. Now we have not seen Mary in a while. We last saw her all the way back in chapter 2 when Jesus was 12 years old. We assumed she was around when Jesus ministered in his hometown of Nazareth. You remember how that went. Their neighbors tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him. We assume she was probably in the area when that happened. But, but here she is. She, she appears again in Luke's gospel. We know that Mary understands better than probably anyone other than Jesus himself who he really is. Mary believes he is the Son of God because she knows of his virgin conception. She knows of his virgin birth. She remembers being visited by the angel Gabriel. She was there to hear the testimony of the shepherds about the angelic announcement that was made to them. She was there as as these wise men from the east prophesied about the glory of her son with their gifts and their words. She had pondered those things in her heart. Likely she has been pondering for decades now, as all parents do as they watch their kids grow and wonder what kind of story God has planned for them. 
Mary is going to be with Jesus to the end. We're going to find Mary at the cross itself and beyond after the resurrection. Unless you think that Jesus is being disrespectful here, lest you think Jesus is being cruel to his mother, remember it is Jesus who uses some of his last breaths on the cross to make sure that his mother is well cared for. It is the Son of God who ensured through the Holy Spirit that Mary's life of humble submission would be passed down throughout the generations, even to this day in this Bible. So Jesus loved his mother. Jesus honored his mother. What we have here is not a slight against his family. What we have here is a teachable moment that Jesus seized. Now, we do see that Mary is not here alone. We are told that Jesus' brothers are with her. And we're not left to wonder about these brothers. They are named for us in Matthew and Mark's accounts. So, for example, we know the oldest of these brothers was a man named James. Very common name in those days. The second son was named Joseph, J-O-S-E-S. It's actually a very common nickname in those days for men named Joseph. And so since their dad's name was Joseph, it made sense that they, prob- made sense that they probably called Joseph the son, Joseph, as a nickname to distinguish him from their dad in the home. We're not sure about the order of the other two brothers, which one came first, but we know there was a Judas who we in English call Jude, and we know there was a Simon. Uh, By the way, the word translated brothers here is a very general term that can actually refer to both men and women, to both brothers and sisters. It's kind of like if I said, now you guys, and yet, of course, you're not all guys, right? We have men and women in here. So this term, Adelphoi, brothers, brothers and sisters, it can refer to both boys and girls. So it is possible that this is saying that Mary is not just here with his brothers, but that Mary is here with all of his siblings, because Jesus had sisters too. Uh, We're not told their names in the New Testament, uh, nor are we told how many there were, only that he had sisters. But we do have at least three writings from the early church period that say that he had two sisters and that their names were Mary and Salome. So it is very possible that what we have here is Mary and the six siblings of Jesus all here trying to get access to him. Now, of course, when I say siblings, you understand that I mean half siblings. Joseph was Jesus' legal father. He was not his biological father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And we have to take a moment to note who is not in this passage, which is Joseph himself. The overwhelming testimony of church history is that Joseph died at some point between Jesus at age 12 And when we see Jesus' family here again with Jesus now in his 30s. The Bible remains silent on the issue. But the description of Joseph's faithfulness, the description of Joseph's character in past passages, gives us every reason to believe that Joseph must have died. Uh, We would very much 
doubt any accusation that he has run off and left his family or anything like, like that. Now, admittedly, some people really struggle with this passage because they struggle with the idea that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, this is largely because many people have been taught this doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, in fact, this is one of the four Marian dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they believe that Mary was a virgin for her entire life. Now, that view doesn't make a whole lot of practical sense. We know she had a husband. We know that they were married for at least 12 years after the birth of Jesus. And Matthew 1, verses 24 and 25 says this, When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So the passage doesn't say that Joseph and Mary refrained from marital intimacy throughout their entire lives together. No, it says he knew her not until Jesus had been born. But what happened is you get about 150 years after the time of Christ, and you have this group of Christians who arose who believed that sex and marriage were all symptoms of original sin. Their view was, well, marriage is good for those people who can't control themselves, but really holy people will be abstinent their entire lives, even if they end up married. Uh, this idea later got mixed with the belief that Mary herself was sinless, that Mary had been kept from all sin, both original sin and personal sin, so that Mary herself was righteous in every way. These are not scriptural ideas. They are rooted in tradition that developed within the Roman Catholic Church, but they continue to be maintained by our Catholic friends to this day. The Eastern Orthodox Church, which includes the Russian Orthodox Church, the Romanian Orthodox Church that we've spent some time interacting with, um, they grew out of that same Catholic tradition. So they also teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. So what do these folks do when they're reading their New Testament and suddenly brothers and sisters of Jesus show up? Well, the Eastern Orthodox Church says these must have been sons and daughters of Joseph from a previous marriage. And that's the view held by almost the entirety of Eastern Christendom. Joseph must have had an earlier wife. He must have been married to somebody before Mary, and then perhaps that wife died, and he has these kids from this former marriage, and here they are showing up in our passage. Again, there is absolutely no scriptural evidence for that view. It's a view that came up from tradition to try and preserve this idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. The Roman Catholic Church goes a different direction today. They say we must have misunderstood the term. Maybe these brothers and sisters of Jesus are really cousins of Jesus. In fact, they argue that maybe Mary in this passage must be some other Mary than his mother and that these brothers must actually be Mary's children who was his cousins. Or... As one of the most recent popes said, 
his view is that these folks were just brothers in the spiritual sense. The way we would speak of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, these were brothers of Jesus in the spiritual sense. As you can see from the text, nobody reading the Bible would come away with those understandings. The clear meaning of the passage is that Joseph and Mary went on to have other kids and that they are now here with Mary trying to reach Jesus. Why are they trying to reach Jesus? Well, we have some clues. First, we know from John chapter 7 that at this point in his life, the siblings of Jesus did not believe in him. Uh, Like so many others... They kept saying, we want more evidence. We want to see some greater sign. They wanted to see the next miracle. They come in John 7 and say, Jesus, go down to Judea. And if you are who you claim to be, show them with some great supernatural work. Mark 3 tells us that after Jesus appointed 12 of his disciples to become apostles, and as soon as he began training them to preach... His family began seeking to seize him, for they said, quote, he is out of his mind. Do you remember that in the Bible? In fact, in Mark, that chapter 3, that word seize, it literally means to lay hands on or to take custody of. It's a strong word. It is not a, hey, Jesus, we're here to tap you on the shoulder to say, hey, would you come have a talk with us? It's, we need to go get him. We need to get him right now and bring him home. It's one thing for him to walk around claiming to be the Messiah. Now he's training other people to say it. And think about their situation. I don't think we should be surprised that even Mary, with all that she knows about who Jesus is, with all that she has experienced, she's concerned too. Why? Because it's obvious that Jesus is setting himself up to be killed. Word is spreading everywhere that this man claims to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There have been others who made such claims and they were all killed by the authorities. Their rebellions were put down. They were arrested and put to death. And so now Jesus is training others to even go out and preach that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. They are concerned for Jesus' livelihood. They are concerned for Jesus' life. There is every indication that this family is here for an intervention. You ever had an intervention? Jesus, even if you are the Messiah, what good is that going to do you when you're dead? Jesus, you have not been raising an army. You have not been organizing a group of militant revolutionaries who can rise up against Rome's might. Very soon, this preaching of yours is going to bring the fury of the Sanhedrin. It's going to bring the fury of Rome. And they're going to have no trouble getting a hold of you. And since you haven't prepared anybody to fight, well, you remember what just happened to John the Baptist. I mean, here he is in a prison Macarius dungeon, right? More than a hundred miles away. Is that what you want to happen to you, Jesus? You want to be rotten in a dungeon with John? So you can see why Jesus was, was not quick to stop everything he was doing and say, Oh, my family's here to see me. Right? Because he knows how they feel. He knows what they're thinking. They are bringing with them a temptation. His family is bringing with them a temptation to turn aside from his father's will, 
for the sake of his own safety. Here is another moment, and it's clear in the other Gospels. Here is another moment in which Jesus is being put to the test. And if he gave in, if he turned from his father's will and listened to his family members, it would have been my salvation and your salvation that would have been lost. Our eternal destinies hung by the balance in this moment. Remember, Jesus is living his life of perfect righteousness on our behalf. In these days, he is accomplishing that perfect obedience that gives accounted to us when we believe on him. Had Jesus sinned in this moment, had Jesus listened to his mother and in honoring his mother disobeyed God and in that way sinned, Jesus could not have been the perfect sinless sacrifice that you needed and that I need. Here is a moment when his loyalty to his mother and to his family is set against his loyalty to his heavenly father. Mount Hermon, let me be as clear as I can. Sometimes following Jesus means going against your family. It would not have been love for Jesus to listen to them. It would not have been right for Jesus to submit to their wishes. Here was one time when the honoring of the desires of his mother would have meant the dishonoring of God himself. I don't know if you remember because it was a long time ago. But we said this day was coming. Back when we were studying Luke chapter 2 and that old man Simeon was in the temple and he blesses eight-day-old baby Jesus and he tells Mary... There's going to be some hard and painful days for you. Yes, Mary had the privilege of being the mother of the Son of God. But she also had the pain of watching a slow motion catastrophe play out. Because she can see as day by day passes, week after week, month after month, she can see where this is going. Her own neighbors already tried to kill him. And Simeon had told her, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Sometimes doing the right thing means causing pain to people you love dearly. Um, it was so hard this past week watching Benjamin, after his surgery, feel incredibly miserable. Feeling like it would never end. But you know what? We were told ahead of time, he's going to hurt. Now, he's going to hurt a lot. The doctor was very clear with us about that. She said, it's going to be a lot of pain. And yet she said, for his long-term well-being, this is best for him. Are you willing to do what is right? Even when it hurts those you love. Meaning... Are you willing to stand against your own child in church discipline if it's required? Are you willing to stand against your spouse or your dad or your mom if they're beginning to pull away from the will of God? We are to love our families. We are to be committed to our families, but we must never let our families become idols. 
Our families must never be first in our hearts. We are to love our families for God's sake. We are to love our families in the way that God teaches, for only then can we love them well. If we make our families an idol, we will find that that kind of love proves to only do them harm in the end. We love our families best by loving them in the second place with God in the first place. Before we move on, let me tell you a little something about how things turn out for these brothers of Jesus. So first I mentioned James. By the time we come to the book of Acts, he not only has come to believe that his brother is in fact the Messiah... He becomes one of the most prominent and important leaders in the early church. We know from Galatians that when Paul showed up in Jerusalem, this former persecutor of the church who's now been transformed by the grace of Jesus, but people were a little wary about him because he used to take them to prison. We know that James at that point was already considered a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And then, when persecution intensified and the apostles began to scatter to different parts of the world with the gospel, it is James, the brother of Jesus, who remains in Jerusalem and becomes the head of the church in that city. He wrote the book of James that you have in your New Testament. And according to Josephus, he was eventually stoned to death by the order of high priest Ananus, the son of Annas, in the year 62 A.D. So this very brother who at one time said, Jesus, you're out of your mind. you got to stop this. Ends up laying down his own life for the name of Jesus. The other three brothers of Jesus also became believers. And like the apostles, they became traveling missionaries. Going from place to place, preaching that Jesus rose from the dead and is who he claimed to be. The biblical evidence for this is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, where Paul is talking about his rights as a missionary. And Paul says, quote, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, it was Paul's contention that just as churches should provide for missionaries and make sure that their basic needs are met, they should also provide for their wives too. Paul himself was single. But he points to the other apostles, especially Peter, whose wife was quite well known. But he also points to the brothers of Jesus as men who took their wives with them as they went from place to place sharing the gospel. By the way, this reminds us, most of the apostles were married men. And that their helpmates, their wives, were often with them in their journeys. These wives, following the pattern of Genesis, were brought into the calling that Christ had given their husbands. And thus, Paul was saying, these churches need to make sure they're not just sending enough material and financial support for the man. Support the family. But the point here is that these brothers of Jesus are set side by side with the apostles as those who were leading the church and going around preaching the gospel. When Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 9, he's probably not thinking of James, who stayed mostly in Jerusalem. 
He's probably thinking mostly of those other three brothers. And what's really interesting is we do have this document from the early church that tells us that these brothers were in a unique position on another front. You remember Herod the Great who killed the babies in Bethlehem, uh, did many other wicked acts. One of the wicked acts that Herod the Great did was he burnt all of the genealogical records of the Jewish families that had been kept at the temple. Herod the Great, his desire was to see Israel Romanize. He wanted Israel to put away their ancient practices, put away those commandments from Moses, put away those practices from the, from the old covenant made at Mount Sinai. It is time, Israel, for you to come into the... He wouldn't have said first century as we do our time. But to come into the modern times, right? right? He wanted them to join the Roman Revolution, to join the things that were happening in Roman culture. And so one of the ways that he did that was by burning the genealogical records that were so important to the people of, of Israel. Because now, without being able to trace your family members, are you going to remember which clan you were part of, which tribe you were part of, when your clan was supposed to go here, and when your clan was supposed to do this in the temple if you were a Levite? Right? These records were huge. Well, when Herod burnt those records, many Jewish families in Israel immediately scrambled to do everything they could to preserve their own genealogy, right? They, you know how many today, that, or at least 50 years ago, had Bibles with the family tree in the front, and you try to preserve your family tree in the front so that, so that future generations would know your genealogy? Jews knew that the Messiah was to come from the tribe of Judah. They knew he was to be a descendant of David, This was true for both Jesus' parents, meaning Joseph, his legal genealogy. Joseph was from the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David. And so was Mary, his biological mother. But the problem was you couldn't go to the temple anymore and prove that. The genealogical records had been burnt. And so an early Christian called Julius Africanus tells us this about the brothers of Jesus. He says, from the Jewish villages of Nazareth and Kokobah, they traveled around the rest of the land and they interpreted the genealogy that they had from their family traditions and from the book of days, that's the book of Chronicles, by the way, as far as they could trace it. In other words, they went around with their family records And not only were they preaching that Jesus is the Christ, but they served as apologists, saying, let us show you that we can prove that he really was descended from David, from the tribe of Judah. In fact, it is very possible that the genealogies that we now have in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel came from the hands of Jesus' brothers, who had preserved that and passed it on to future generations. Um, If you want to know more about these brothers of Jesus and their heart, one thing you can do is read the book of Jude. So the book of Jude, written by that brother of our Lord, shows you something of what was happening in in his heart and his mind as he cared for the people of God. So with all that in mind, we see that Jesus ultimately did his family a great deal of good by not giving in to them, by continuing to do his father's will, The result was their own salvations, and we've seen the people that they became. All right, focus on verse 21. Verse 21. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers 
are those who hear the word of God and do it. The great lesson here is about what it truly means to be connected to Christ. What does it mean to be united to Jesus, to be part of his family in the eternal and the lasting sense? You see, our earthly family relationships are not permanent. Our earthly family relationships are not eternal. Our familial bonds don't go with us to heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 22, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So at least it appears that all of our earthly familial bonds only exist in this world, in this life, and it's for one reason, to foreshadow the better bonds, the spiritual bonds that do last forever. From the eternal perspective, the fact that this group of people standing outside trying to reach Jesus are related to him by blood doesn't matter. Because who are the people who are truly Jesus' family? Who are the people that are truly united to him in the forever sense? It is those, he says, who hear the word of God and do it. We see this same idea play out throughout the New Testament when it comes to who should be counted as the true Israel. Who's part of the lasting Israel? And we learn it's not those with Abraham's blood in their veins. It's the true Israel. It's those with faith in Abraham's God in their hearts who is the true Israel. When when we take on Abraham's God, Yahweh, and we believe in him and trust in him, we become sons and daughters of Abraham. The true Israel is not the Israel of ethnicity. The true Israel is not the Israel of bloodlines. The true Israel is people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, united by the Spirit of God with love for Jesus in their hearts and the praise of Jesus on their lips. So also, all these people are crowded around this house. They want access to Jesus. This this crowd is full of people who want to be close to Him. And yet here are these who we might say should be closest to him of all, his family. And Jesus says, actually, it's those who trust and obey. It's those who put the word of God into practice who are closest to me, who are my eternal family. That is good news for you and me. Because it means that we're not kept away. If if being close to Jesus and having access to Jesus was all about blood relatives, we'd have no possibility. We're mostly Gentiles in this room. We're not related to Jesus in that way. But Jesus says here, it's not about blood. It's about trusting obedience. If you have come to love Jesus and to trust in Him to the degree where you listen to what He says and you take it to your heart and you seek to live it out, you are His and He is yours and you have access to Him. This means you can know Him and He can know you and there can be a relationship of love To those who are His as the risen and descended Lord, He is able to give you 24-7 access. 
You can get to him anytime you want. He not only invites you, he commands you to come to him with your worries and your anxieties and your concerns. Bring your burdens to him. Leave them with him. He cares for you. Yes, we are saved by faith alone. But real faith is distinguished from false faith by this mark, obedience. And this is what Jesus has been hitting at throughout Luke chapter 8. Over and over again, we're seeing it in passage after passage. Real followers of Jesus obey. Do you trust him enough to actually do what he says? Do you trust him enough to actually put his life-giving precepts into practice? Are you just a fan or are you a disciple? He's smarter than we are. He's wiser than we are. He loves us more than we love ourselves. This passage is a call for us to run to him, to submit to him, to embrace what he did for us on the cross. And then in the joy of our forgiveness, in the joy of our salvation, in the joy of the promise of heaven, we go out these doors and we live in principled obedience. How often during your day do you say, what would Christ have me do here? What would my Lord have me do? What is my master's will here? Thankfully, you don't have to rely on a gut feeling. He has spoken to you by his word. What a joy it is to be part of the family of Christ. Mary is there not because she was his mother, but because he is her savior and she has trusted him. Meaning, she is in the eternal family of God. James and Joseph and, and Simon and Jude, right, right? They're all part of the family of Jesus, but they're all dead now. They're not related to Jesus by blood anymore. Oh, they have a much closer connection. He has redeemed them by his blood. They have been saved by his grace. Are you part of the eternal family of Christ? Are you counted among the the people of God? I pray that you are. Let's pray.